starting a series uh, for in the Minor Prophets, and I think um, for for most Christians today, studying and learning about the Minor Prophets is a little like me telling my kids the importance of eating vegetables. Um, the conversation kind of goes like, you know, look, I, I, I know this is good for you. You know this is good for you. And it's just something we have to do. You got to get three servings of this a day, every day. And I know they look strange and I know they taste strange. It's just something you have to do, right? I think that pretty much sums up how people feel about when they look at that section of the Bible and they say Obadiah or Habakkuk or poor Haggai or Zephaniah. Amos, we're only slightly more familiar with, but just because we know the famous cookie guy, right? And Malachi, you go, oh, if I read that, I don't really know a lot about what he's talking about, but I probably have to give more in the tithe plate when it comes through, so I'm going to avoid that particular book, all right? For, let me ask you this, just to, to, to prove my point. When was the last time you quoted, uh, you know, sometimes we share scriptures with people like in an email tag or you just encourage people from God's word. When was the last time any of you quoted and encouraged somebody with a scripture verse from the book of Nahum? Does anyone even know a verse from Nahum by memory? <laughs> no, ser seriously, if any of you know a verse from Nahum, I will give you a copy of this book. It's called How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets by Dr. Peter Gentry. It's an amazing book. Nahum, anybody? Okay, Can't, you guys are proving my point here. Has anybody quote any verse from a minor prophet? Okay, can anyone name the minor prophets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> okay, can anyone name three minor prophets? Uh, all I'm hearing is Charlie Brown. Okay, somebody raise their hand, name three minor prophets, and this is theirs. Okay, back there. Oh, Hosea 4.6. Excellent. All right. Here you go. Thank you. Now, honestly, I don't think that our neglect of the minor prophets is because we don't value them or we don't think it's important. Actually, probably most Christians kind of get discouraged that they don't know about as much of the prophets as they'd like to. And, and I mean, think about it. understanding them, let alone applying them to our lives, is difficult if we can't even understand their times and what was going on in their lives. And so as a result, there's a chunk of God's word we don't get to benefit from. So as we turn these months into the summer months, what we want to do together is study the minor prophets so that we can understand them, but more importantly, so that they can speak to us like they have for God, to God's people for such a long time. So this morning, this morning's going to be an introduction into the series, and then we'll jump into it thoroughly next week with a study of Hosea, and then we'll go through the entire summer looking at a prophet a week, and then we'll end about mid-August with the book of Malachi. So this morning, because it's an introduction, it's going to be a little bit more content heavy, um, but I have some nice slides I think will help coordinate as we go through. What we want to do is ask and answer four questions, okay? We want to ask and answer four questions. Number one... Who are the minor prophets? Now, this is a question of context. What, what was their time like? What was the issues going on? What made them who they were? We want, so who were these minor prophets? Number two, we want to ask the question, what was the message of the minor prophets? And this is a question of content. 
with, with 12 of these minor prophets, were they all saying different things? And if so, what was that? Or were they all saying the same kind of thing? So what was their message? The third question we want to ask is, why do they write this way? Now, if you read, have you ever read prophetic literature? It, it's, can I just be, it's a trip, man. Sometimes you're going, what is going on? Why did they write this way? And then we want to la- ask and answer the last question. Why are they important for us today? This is the question of significance. So who were the minor prophets? What was the message of minor prophets? Why did they write this way? And why are they important for us today? So let's look at it one at a time. So as we get started, what I want you to do is to turn open into your Bibles to the very, very front, the table of contents. Because what we want to do as we start the study of the minor prophets is to locate how they fit and where they fit in the whole canon of Scripture. So the minor prophets refer to the 12 books in the Bible that start after the prophet Daniel. So if you're looking at your table of contents, you see from Daniel all the way to the end of the Old Testament canon are the minor prophets. They're also called the book of the 12. And and that's actually the way the Hebrew Bible or the Jews refer to the minor prophets. In other words, they saw the book of the 12, the minor prophets, not as 12 individual books, but rather as one big book, and every prophet was a single chapter in that book. Now, the reason I like that, and I think that as we've named the title, the book of the 12, I love that they do that because there's a sense of coherency to the prophets. You don't get a sense of it's just these 12 different people with 12 different messages and all this, and it's hard to keep track of it. While there's differences in them, when they call them the book of the 12, there's a sense of coherency and unity that reminds you that this is one overarching message. So as we begin, you should all be at a table of contents at some point. Let, Let me start with this slide and see how many of you can relate to it. So here it is. Let me explain it to you briefly. On the left-hand side, you see an arrow going up, and the word says level of knowledge, confidence, and certainty. And then on the bottom, we have two arrows going to the right. One says canon of scripture, and that's keyed to the words at the top. So you see the canon of scripture starts with Genesis, moves to Exodus, then moves into the historical books, and then Jesus and the Gospels. And then there's a second line under that called timeline. So I just want to get you oriented to what we're looking at here. I think a lot of people's knowledge of the Bible kind of tends to go like this. So when it comes to Genesis, there's a strong knowledge and certainty. Like we know Abraham, we know the creation account. They've got uh, Noah, the Tower of Babel. But as we go through the canon, you see this is like 2100 years back there, 2100 BC plus. As we get to the canon, our understanding and knowledge begins to diminish. So we get to the Exodus and yeah, we still know Moses. We know about the Exodus. We know about the law and Israel becoming a nation. And then when we move to the historical books, Oh, okay, we know, like, there's Gideon. If I went to Sunday school, I remember Gideon and his army. And there's something about King David and King Solomon. And then after that, it just kind of gets a little bit, I have no idea what's going on. Uh, there's there's Obahu, kings of Israel, major, minor, Solo, Song of Solomon's about what? And, you know, just, and then just get to Jesus. Whew, and our certainty goes back up again. Right? This is how most Christians probably understand the Bible. They got some certain things, but then after you get to King David, the wheels fall off entirely until we get to Jesus and the Gospels. Now, let me show you a couple other slides. What I'm trying to do, by the way, this is, again, some biblical theology. We've been talking about this for a year. Actually, right now in room 109, we have a class on biblical theology. It's taught by Scott Beckley. It's called... Um, 
pick God's big picture. We're using one of those books. Yeah, so, so if, if what some of you hear, you feel like, oh, I kind of know more of this, I encourage you to jump into that class, even though they've been at it for about four weeks. It's still good. So here we go. Now look at your table of contents. Okay, you're going to look at the table of contents and the screens behind me. So it starts with the Pentateuch in the Bible. Pentateuch means five writings or five books, and that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the foundation of it all, friends. This is, I mean, this is the big stuff. We have anthropology, we have teleology, we have all the big questions of life answered in these five books. It's the foundation. We call it the law. We tend to think of law as a police officer or as a judge or as a drill sergeant, and sure, there's those elements in it, but what our understanding of the law misses, that the, that the Hebrews have, this is like the law of a father. There's relationship, there's care there, there's a reason. So the law is the foundation. This is who we are, this is why we're here, this is who God is, this is what the creation's about. This is how to live life, how to have meaning and find joy. That's what the law is about, right? Well, on top of that, though, if you look in your Bibles again, after the first five books, Genesis, Deuteronomy, then we get to Joshua that goes all the way up to then Esther, and this is the history. Now, what I want you to do is I don't want you to think, okay, now here's more information that I'm kind of got to absorb so much as the historical books are merely recording how the people of God, whether it was a family, a clan, tribe, or the nation, understood and related to the law and applied the law and the blessings that came from that or the, the tragedy as a result. So it's still building on the law. All it's doing is illustrating this is what happened to a people who obeyed and loved and delighted in it or the people who rejected it, despised it, and, and were crushed by it, right? And then you look back at your table of contents Beyond Esther, then you see this area called, uh, it's called the wisdom literature, and you see in your table of contents, that goes from Job, Esther, after Esther, all the way through the Song of Solomon. And again, this is not more totally new material so much as it is, instead of looking at how God's law blessed a people and a nation, the wisdom literature gets more intimate. How, how does the law tease out in one person's life? when someone chose to apply it to themselves and all the blessings and that flowed from that, the tragedy and heartache that flowed from people who denied it in their lives. And it's called the wisdom literature because it also deals with the reality of understanding that this is God's prescribed way of living in a fallen world where people make foolish choices and that impacts us. So what happens to a righteous man who obeys the law and tragedy ensues? What, why is it that when people do evil and wicked, they prosper, and the one who does righteousness flounders? It, it is showing that God understands that while on the one hand, he's given his law that brings flourishing in life, and, and principally all these things, we live in a broken world, and things happen that we don't want to, and things happen that, that displease God, but that's reality. And, and it's interesting that wisdom literature is the literature that contains the most amount of suffering. And so, so the wisdom literature, it unpacks, teases out God's law at an individual level. And then, you back to your table of contents, you then see after Song of Solomon, you see Isaiah 
all the way through Malachi, and this is what's called the prophetic literature. And the prophets, they're not adding anything new. They're, they're, they're building on what's come. But now, instead of looking at the law of God and the foundation, what it looks like in a people, what it looks like in exceptions and an individual's life, the prophet's job was just to proclaim, uh, call people back to it, encourage them to obedience, and warn them of disobedience and the results thereof. So their whole job, the prophet's job, minor prophets or major prophets, was to call God's people to covenant faithfulness. And by the way, I didn't mention that. In, in the foundation, God gave covenants. Now, that's not a word we typically use in our culture unless you're buying a home and you have all those covenant, what are they called? Yeah, covenants and agreements, and we just don't like those. But last night, I got to be a part of a beautiful covenant uh, Brian Larson and Lauren Pierce got married, and I got to be part of their wedding. And I use the word covenant because that's what's happening, a promise being made, an oath being taken, relationships being established. And in the Old Testament, uh, in, the, in, the, in the first five books, we have a lot of covenants, the covenant of creation, uh, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant. So covenant is a big deal. All that means is agreeing to the law and the prophet's job, call people back to faithfulness. Warn them of disobedience. Okay, that's what the prophet's job was. So, the rise of the prophets in the Bible, you're looking at your table of contents, the rise of the prophets is in keeping with the rise of the nation of Israel. And so, the priests in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the priest's job was to mediate the relationship between God and the people and the people to God. That was their job, to mediate the relationship. The prophet's job was to proclaim the terms of that relationship. So they serve very different functions. The priest mediated between God and the people. The prophet proclaimed the terms of that relationship. The king, which, by the way, as we see the people of God, right, you know the story, it starts with one man named Adam, and it becomes man and Eve, Adam and Eve, and then it becomes a family, and Abraham's line becomes a tribe, it becomes a clan, it becomes a nation, and then they become a nation with a king and structure, millions of people. With the rise of the kings, you see the rise of the prophets, because the prophet was to be, was to be the mouth of God in the ear of the king as the king led the people of God. God's people were never intended to be led by a single solitary man. The man would serve as a, as a kind of vice regent for God. And so even though he was king, he didn't serve to his own dictates. He served on the agenda of someone else. And the prophet constantly kept reminding him, him of this role that he had. And so you had the, the major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, right? And then you had all the other minor prophets, the, the remaining 12, now, my wife said I should point out that if you look at your table of contents, you have Lamentations. Lamentations is not a prophet per se. It is the writing of Jeremiah. So it's Jeremiah's writing, but all the other prophetic books are named after the prophet. Now, they're called minor prophets, not because they're like the farm league for the major prophets, right? Like major league and minor league. That's not, that's not what's going on here, right? The original, Augustine was the first to call them the minor prophets, and he simply meant they were shorter in length. So the message is just as important. It's just much shorter when you compare Jeremiah to, say, Jonah, right? So that's why they're called minor prophets. Now, the reason it gets really crazy here, and we just kind of lose track of what's going on, 
is because, as I said, the prophets kind of come onto the scene with the rise of the kings, and what happens here is that the, the kingdom of Israel, after Solomon, splits into two, right? So 10 of the nations make up the northern kingdom of Israel, and then Judah and the, the other remaining two in the south make up the king of Judah. And you have three centuries, from 8th century to 5th century B.C., of king after king after king after king, and so you get prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. At some point, you just, by virtue of the numbers, you lose track of what's going on, right? So there's all kinds of confusion as to what's happening here. In addition, not only did God raise up prophets to speak to his people, God rose up prophets to speak to the other surrounding nations. So, for example, Obadiah, uh, Nahum, Jonah, I think Zephaniah, were entirely bringing messages to the other nations of the peoples around Israel. Now, you might ask, well, wait, I thought the Bible was all about God working with his people. Why would he make things unnecessarily complicated by bringing in more prophets, talking to other people and other kings? What has to do with covenant? Now, uh, keep your finger in the table of contents and turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This is where we hear um, kind of the, the Abrahamic covenant. And, and really, Genesis 12 is where it begins, but it gets ratified in Genesis 15. Now, all of Scripture is inspired by God. We know that. The Word of God is the Word of God. But that doesn't mean that every chapter is as significant as other chapters, right? Certain chapters keep the plot line going along, so they deserve a little bit more attention. So if you're a note taker, you might want to, you might want to write down Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and Genesis 15, and write Abrahamic Covenant. Because this is significant, friends. By the way, none of God's covenants get abolished. They just kind of get added onto. So all these covenants continue to grow. This is the the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant in uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, stop. That's, that's, that's the thing we want to focus on. The Lord was saying, Abraham, everyone who blesses you blesses my people. Guess what? I'm going to bless them. And everyone who comes against you, everyone who curses you, guess what? I'm going to curse them too. I'm going to come against them because you are my chosen people. Through you, every family on the earth shall be blessed. That's a hint, folks, to what Jesus is going to do. The gospel breaking past the Jews into the Gentiles. And that's us. We, in some way, sitting here now, if Christ is your Savior, you're part of fulfillment of what's being spoken of here in Genesis 12. So let's come back to why does God send prophets like Obadiah to the surrounding nations of Edom and Moab? It's because of God fulfilling and being true to his covenant. Edom, Moab, you people, you you betrayed my people. You sold them into slavery. You warred against them. I'm sending my prophets to be good to my word to tell you what's going to happen now. So, so, so God is sending his prophets, and that's why it can get confusing, because it's over three centuries, north and south, all these nations and Israel, and we just, by virtue of the fact of the amount, we lose sight of what's going on. Now, coming full circle, 
The prophet's job is, as I said, to proclaim God's word. I want you to write down another chapter, Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is a critical chapter in understanding the prophets and the covenant of God. Now, Deuteronomy 28, it is a significant chapter because this is where the second generation of Hebrew slaves are about to take the promised land. Now, notice I said second generation because this wasn't the original crew that left Egypt. Remember, what happened to the original Jews, the Hebrews that came out of Egypt? They denied God. They disbelieved God, and they end up wandering in the wilderness. Do you remember in the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers 10, uh, Numbers 10 through 14, God brings them to the promised land. And Moses says, this is it. This is what it's all about. Let's go send some spies to spy out the land. And they sent out 12 spies. And then they came back. And how many of them said, yes, let's do it? Two, right? The rest of them said, no, the land is it's beautiful. It's huge. It's everything God said it would be. But there are giants in the land. We're like, we're like little bugs to them. Our children will be crushed. We can't do this. Only Caleb, and I forget who the other gentleman was, but I remember Caleb said, we can do this, but the people chose to listen to the other ten. And as a result, God said, look, if you're not going to believe me, you're not going to inherit the promised land. As a matter of fact, your kids who you feared would be crushed will be the ones who go into the land and crush them. And so for 40 years, they wandered around until everyone died out in the wilderness. And years later, 40 years later, here they are, Deuteronomy 28. By the way, Deuteronomy means kind of second iteration, second law giving, right? That's why it seems like it repeats some of the things. Here they are on the cusp of the promised land, and before they go in, Moses, all right, before we go in, let's get this thing right. God gave us a covenant. God told us how to live. God told us how to love him. God told us how to treat humanity humanely. God told us how to care for the creation. And we agreed to it, our parents agreed to it back at Sinai 50 years ago or so. I just want to make sure we're all on board. And so this amazing scene where they get onto these two mountainsides and they read all the blessings that will flow to the people of God when they obey him and make him their delight. And it's amazing. And they read all the cursings that, they, that will come to them that they agreed upon if they disobey him and deny him and, and do not make him their delight. And so can you imagine maybe a million people Hundreds of thousands on this hillside, hundreds of thousands on this hillside reading this out. And they said, we're in. We agree to this covenant. Our, our parents agreed to it in, at Sinai. We agree to it here at Moab. Let's take the land. You go home tonight, spend just 10 minutes, read Deuteronomy 28, and rejoice in delight and recoil in horror of the consequence of obedience versus disobedience. God's judgments. See, you'll learn why through the prophetic literature, God's judgments were so severe as his blessings were so supreme because this is exactly what they agreed upon. Now, to be clear, God is not some passive-aggressive deity that, that just kind of flip and flops and just arbitrary with this. God understands how reality works. He says, this is how the fabric of reality works. 
financial, integrity, uh, economic, ec uh, environmental, sexual. This is how it works. So live this way like the laws of physics. If you deny them, there's consequences. These laws are just as immutable. And so it wasn't like God was saying, hey, I want you to do this and do it because I said so. He said, these are my laws for your good. These are my laws for you as an individual, for you as a people, for this creation. That's why he was so wanting to bless them, and that's why judgment would be severe if that we broke them. They're not arbitrary. By the way, those things still apply to us to this day. Remember, the covenants never break. They're just added onto. And they, the people of God, agreed to it joyfully, willingly, not just once, twice, and said, yes, we agree to this. And so, friend, in a very real sense, Every promise of blessing, every warning of judgment from every one of the prof, 12 prophets particularly, is merely a call to return to the covenant faithfulness of Deuteronomy 28. That, that, that's what the prophets were about. So let's talk a little bit about then um, what was their message, okay? So their message was a threefold message. It was a promise or a warning against, a warning of judgment a promise of salvation and hope, and a call or a cry to repentance. It's a warning of judgment, a promise of salvation and hope, and a cry to repentance. Now, here's the reality. The details change, the situations change, the kings change, but the heart of man does not change. So the message was the same for three centuries. God kept sending prophet after prophet saying the same thing. These were the three things that every prophet would say. Now, because we're also located in a context, in a culture, in a circumstance, the prophetic message had to address those issues as well. But the threefold thrust of a warning of judgment, promise of hope and salvation, call to repentance was always there. But Amos would just have to tweak that to address the lack of social concern, the social injustice that existed because of their wealth. Malachi had to address the apathy and the spiritual malaise of the people. Obadiah had to address the hardness of heart and the betrayal within their hearts, the animosity that they had towards others. Hosea had to address the lack of faithfulness and fidelity to the Lord their God. And all of these were a violation of the covenant that God had given to them that they had agreed to, and they violated it over and over and over and over again. If you were to read the Pentateuch, if you could get past a lot of the things that kind of confuse us, the laws and the, 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 the detail of it, you would see that God's law basically is this is how you love me, who loves you so endlessly. This is how you treat each other humanely, and this is how you take care of the creation I've given to you and they violated it all the time. The challenge, I think, friends, for us is reading the Bible in fullness. Because it's so strange and foreign to us, we get distracted by the culture and the context, and we feel like, oh, that would never, that, that's not us, obviously. I don't worship at an Asherah pole, but I do worship or I do thrive on the accolades of other people. Well, friends, that's an idolatry as much as anything else. You may not be pursuing or bowing down to a statue of Baal, but if you live for the almighty dollar and that's all you're about, you're just like them. 
So the danger is being distracted by the window dressing and missing the heart of people. Friends, can I say, we are exactly like them. Our culture, our time, we're just like these people. So we want to hear the prophet's words because we're the same kind of people. Let me show you one last slide to help kind of locate this because we're talking about three centuries and all kinds of people. So this might be helpful. Um, we talked about the, the nation of Israel had split into two. So there's the northern nation or the northern kingdom, prophets to Israel. And then there's the southern kingdom, prophets to Judah. And then what you see on the left column is the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian period. So you should know this, but let me just say it. There's not like regular history and then Jesus history out here, like as if they're two totally different worlds, right? Everything happens together. We're all living in the same world. So much of the biblical text happens in regular historical periods. So during the 8th and 7th century BC, the Assyrians were the power of the land. And for roughly probably 150 years there, God sent Jonah, Amos, and Hosea to the northern kingdoms, and during that time, God sent Micah and Isaiah to the southern kingdoms. Now, all the smaller uh, texts are ba basically the major prophets. I, mean, I want to distinguish that because we're focusing on the minor prophets. <clears throat> so you can see for about 150 years, God sent prophets to, these, to, to his people during the Assyrian period, and the message was the same. Warning of judgment, promise of hope, salvation, a call to repentance, get back to the covenant, be faithful, and they ignored every single one of them. They were the people of God. They still had the temple. They still had the Torah. They were in the territory, but they violated the covenant. And finally, in 722 BC, the Assyrians smashed the northern kingdom and drug all 10 tribes off to exile in Assyria. The reason it goes down to 681 BC is because God and his faithfulness was continuing to send prophets even during that time. Assyria finally fell off the world scene. Babylon became the power, and they were from about the 6th to the 7th uh, the, the of the 6th century BC. Obviously, there's no prophets to Israel because Israel no longer exists, the, the northern kingdom. And so God sent Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Obadiah to the remaining southern kingdom. And guess what their message was? Warning of judgment, promise of salvation and hope, call to repentance, and they didn't listen. They just saw literally their family just 130 so years ago, get smashed, destroyed, and drug off to slavery and exile. Did they listen? No. 586 BC, after many sieges, finally the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and dragged everyone off into exile as well. And yet God's faithfulness, 70 years later, Babylon fell off the world scene. Persia became the, no, the dominant world power. I think it was Xerxes had a great philosophy. He wanted all the gods to love him. And the way to do that was to send all deported people back to their lands, build their temples on the one condition that your God loved me, right? So he had a very, uh, very kind of diplomatic way of doing this. So he proclaimed that the Jews could go back to their homeland. And so many of them did. But did they learn the lesson? Not quite. So God in his mercy sent Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi to, again, ask them to be faithful to the covenants. And they all had the same message. Here's the bad news. You've broken covenant with God. Here's the good news. God is merciful and kind and wants you to bring you back to himself. All you need to do is repent and turn from your ways. Okay, that does sound familiar, doesn't it? Let me read it to you in the words of the gospel we've been studying. This is what Jesus said. The time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Friends, that's the time is fulfilled. There is a judgment coming. We are hitting that point. The kingdom's here, either for your blessing or your banishment. What are you going to do? I'm asking you to repent. It's the same message. It's the same message, by the way, that we preach. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we, us, are ambassadors. What's an ambassador? It's a representative of someone else. It's someone's spokesperson. We all are ambassadors. We implore you, the world, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Friends, the gospel message that we proclaim is the same message that Jesus proclaimed. It's the same message that the minor prophets proclaim. It's the same message that was given to the people of God in Sinai and again uh, in Deuteronomy 28. It's the same message. Things have not changed. This is the message that would have certainly saved these ancient people, and it's the same message that has saved millions since. Love God. Obey His commands. Because it is for your good. Even when you don't think so. Even when it's counterintuitive, which is why the wisdom literature is there. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 1611. I mean, the you show me some, Psalm 16:11. the psalmist says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Friends, you show me someone, something, some God that can promise life, the maximum of joy that lasts for eternity, and I'll be there in a heartbeat. The reality is nobody can promise that. Only one person could. That was Jesus Christ. That is the God of Israel, of Abraham, of Jacob. He says it right in his word. All right. So you know who the minor prophets were. You know how important their message was. Now the next question we have to ask is, um, why did they speak the way they did? I mean, you got these oracles and these prophecies, and here's the one that stumps me, Poetry. Think about it. If you have a message of doom and you are stern, are you going to write a poem about it? Right? So I always wonder when I'm reading this, if this is like apocalyptic stuff, why do you choose to use poetry? So the question is, why did the prophets write this way? Two reasons the prophets wrote the way they did. Number one was culture. Number two, credibility. First, the prophets were writing to the normal conventions of their cultural time, okay? It it shouldn't surprise us, nor should we expect it as 21st century Americans to easily understand 8th century BC Hebrews, right? I mean, I know that's obvious, but it needs to be said. That means when we read the prophetic literature, friends, it's gonna take a little bit of work on our part. This is not like reading... I was going to say the Sunday funnies, but does that even translate anymore? But it's not like just reading casual things. We shouldn't expect it to be because it's so different. They are ancient and Eastern. We're modern and Western. We don't even think like they do. So when you're about to read the modern pro- or the, the prophets, I'm just trying to encourage you, don't just uh, uh, start reading it as if you should get it instantaneously. It's going to require a little bit of work. We don't think the same way. We think, this is Western society, in linear progression. In ancient Eastern society, they thought in recursive pattern. 
So what I mean by that is, to us, repetition bores us, right? So you repeat something more than twa- once, and I'm already bored, right? That, 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 that's the way we think. In, in Hebrew and Eastern culture, repetition engages them. So we think A should lead to B, which then to C, then to D, then conclusion, I'm done. The Eastern mindset would say, well, A, well, there's more sides to A. Let's think about A from above A and below A, behind A in front of A. Then we kind of get A, and maybe we'll think about moving on to B. Now, our friend Ati is smiling because she's from Iran, and she gets that, right? They understand that's the way they think. The Hebrews were very different, so they were writing to the conventions of their culture. And when you think about it, friends, isn't that exactly how the Old Testament, the way we just looked at it, is laid out? God says, here's the law. Before jumping to Jesus and everything else, we've got several books of, now here's how you look at the law from a national perspective. Here's how you look at the law from a personal perspective. Here's how you look at the law all these different ways, and then they move on. To illustrate, if you're back in the table of contents, I just want to point this out to you. So if you're looking at, we see 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and in our thinking, which actually this is true from Samuel to Kings, but our thinking is 1st Chronicles picks up the story where 2nd Kings left off, and then 2nd Chronicles, or Ezra after 2nd Chronicles, picks up the story after 2nd Chronicles. That's the way we tend to think, because we're linear, right? First and second Kings talks about the history of God's people from a political perspective, a manward view. How did things take, up, take place politically and militarily? First and second Chronicles looks at the same material from a spiritual perspective, from Godward view, and the, the, where the condition of the people's heart were, right? Um, the prophetic literature looks at the same historical material, but looks at it from a covenant perspective, the covenant, how, how well did they abide by the covenant? So it goes past in the Abrahamic covenant, and it also goes future because of the new covenant that's to come. They're looking at the same period of time from a political, spiritual, and covenantal perspective, but it's all the same period, recursive pattern, right? That's how radically different they are. Let me just quote uh, from, from this book that I just gave away. It's really good. Using the recursive approach, a Hebrew author begins a discourse on a particular topic, develops it from a particular perspective, and then concludes his conversation. Then he begins another conversation, taking up the same topic again from a different point of view. When these two conversations or discourses on the same topic are heard in succession, they are like the left and right speakers of a stereo system. Do the speakers of a stereo system give the same music? Or do they give different music? The answer is that the music they give is both different and the same. In one sense, the music from the left speaker is identical to that of the right, yet in another way, it is slightly different so that the effect is stereo instead of just one-dimensional. Just so, in Hebrew literature, the ideas presented can be experienced like uh, 3D IMAX movies with Dolby surround sound. They are three-dimensional or full-orbed ideas. Friends, probably the best genre of literature to reflect this like thoughtful discourse is, guess what? Poetry. So the reason it is so full of poetry is because it best makes use of this reflective, thoughtful pattern. Now, secondly, 
The second reason they wrote this way is not just culture, but credibility. And I'm still building on poetry functioning this way, but what I mean by credibility is they had to establish that they were spokespersons for God. And so they gave a lot of prophecy, right? But they also were giving prophecy not just so their people currently could understand it, but because God's word was for all peoples in all times everywhere, currently and future, it's written with a lot of symbolism, a lot of metaphor, a lot of figures of speech built into that poetry. And so a lot of people think biblical prophet's job is to what? Tell the future, right? That actually is more of a secular pagan concept from, uh, so we got Nostradamus or the oracles of Delphi. Biblical prophets, by contrast, only spoke of the future events so that when they came to pass, people would recognize these speak for God because only God knows the future. So they didn't show up going, wow, check this out. I'm going to give you some prophecy to blow your mind so you can look at your newspaper and try and figure this out. That was not the point of the prophets. So when they would prophesy, they would intentionally give a short-term prophecy, like a year or two, so that the people currently could see, this is what Obadiah just got through telling us about. This is what um, Haggai mentioned. And they would say, only God can see the future. What they're saying must be true. So they would give short-term prophecy to establish credibility. They would give midterm prophecy that from our perspective is already ancient history, the time of Christ. And then they would give long-term prophecy that even is future for us today. But the whole point was to establish their credibility not so we could be amazed at prophecy, so that we could take the call to be faithful to covenant seriously. That's the point of prophecy. Friends, if, if you are totally in the prophecy, I would encourage you, don't miss the main point of prophecy. It is not to figure out the details. It is to be faithful to what God's called you to live and do. So some of those midterm prophecies, some, some early-term prophecies was like Isaiah actually naming the Persian king that would release everyone to come back to the promised land 70 years in the future. So that's a, a little bit longer of a stretch. Isaiah literally names the king who at the time, it would be like me saying Liechtenstein is going to be the superpower of the, you know, of the world in three years. And you're like, <laughs> Liechtenstein, right? That would be as crazy. But Isaiah named the king. And when it came to pass, they realized Isaiah spoke for the Lord. And Micah did the same. So then when Micah said in Micah 5.2, Bethlehem, your savior is going to come from you. They would say oh, everything Micah said was true because that's just what happened. Zechariah 9.9, your Messiah will come on a donkey. And when it happened, everyone would read Zechariah and say, so whatever Zechariah says must be true. Now, many of those things are past for us, but when we read the prophets, we ought to say, if this happened then, then everything else they say is true. And we need to hear their message. And so that's our last question. It's the question I call, so What? And that's the question of significance. Why are they important to us today? And the minor prophets are important to us because the human heart has not changed, friends. Comfort in our lives can still create apathy in our hearts. Fear around us can still, difficulty can still discourage us. Persecution can cause us to be afraid. Pressures can cause us to compromise. Money can be an idol as much as a statue of Baal. And likewise, Hope from God still encourages us. Learning of God's mercy can bring us to tears. Understanding God's love for us can be transforming. 
recognizing that God is in our corner can be the, the game changer in the way you live your life. We need the message of the minor prophets because while the world of the minor prophets changed radically around them, the world, the world around us has changed, but the world within us hasn't. We wrestle with the same issues. We are no different than an eighth century Hebrew. It's not like we have concerns or anxieties that, and cares that they didn't understand. They just called them different things. So we need to hear the message. Unfortunately, um, from a human perspective, the ministry of the minor prophets was a failure. Out of 12 minor prophets and 300 years of preaching, there are only four positive responses to the preaching of God's word. And, and one of them you can't really count because they were the brutal Assyrians. They weren't even the people of God, right? And that was under Jonah's ministry. So of three centuries and 11 minor prophets, God's people responded to his word positively three, on only three instances. Friends, when, when you think about that, that should frighten us to the persistent nature of unbelief and the lack of responsiveness, of responsiveness to God's word being proclaimed. Guys, that's, that's frightening for me as a human being to read that because I'm no different, you're no different. And that's part of the message of the minor prophets. If the people of God for three centuries could hear prophets and not change, what chance do we have if we are not on our face saying, Lord, what David prayed last week, make that true of me, keep my heart here. Don't let me move from this spot. We need to hear the message of the prophets that to love God above all else is the most important thing. To live righteously above all else. Now, the prophets don't define not to live religiously, but to live righteously. Right? There's a difference. The idea of righteous living in the Old Testament was not what you might think of moralism and involvement in a church. It was, do I live with integrity? Am I concerned about those who are oppressed? Am I using my power, my wealth, my time for the good of other people so that they might glorify God? That's different. That's hugely different, right? We need to hear that faith is both loving God and living in this world well because God loves it because it's his creation and he's called us to do the same. We need to hear the message of Micah to conclude chapter 6, verse 8, when he writes, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Like I said, the minor prophets are a little bit like eating our vegetables. It might be hard, but it is so good for us to do. And hopefully now with this little bit of an introduction in our, under our belt, we won't avoid them maybe as much as we normally would have. Let me give you, uh, as we end, one bit of homework. I know, church, you're not supposed to give homework, but I think this will be good. We are starting by reading Hosea. 14 chapters, five pages in your Bible will take you 30 minutes to read it. I guarantee you, if you spend that time to do it, your ability to get something out of Hosea will go through the roof. So do that as your homework, right? Five, five pages, 30 minutes of reading. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the minor prophets. And Lord, we, we want to be attentive recognizing how can people for 300 years hear prophets sent from you and yet still violate the covenant. Father, in asking that question, we indict ourselves because we have their words written to us and how often we fall into apathy 
a malaise. We don't take you seriously. We chintz on what our giving to you is, our, our sacrifice of life and sustenance. And so, Father, we find ourselves, we are, we are with those people. And so we ask for your mercy and we ask for your grace. Most importantly, Lord, we ask for that mercy and grace to be revealed in hearts of obedience, fueled by love for you in grateful response for the love you have constantly showed in the past, in the present, and will continue in our future. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.